welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, welcome to those who are joining us online, as well as, uh, again, anyone who's new here. We're excited to have you. You're, you're joining our study. We're, we're halfway or more than halfway through our study in 2 Corinthians. And uh, we started uh, last week uh, a bit of a, a series of sorts, and we'll finish it next week on these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9. And normally, you know, when we go through a book, we kind of go verse by verse or, or really passage by passage. And, and we try to, to, to see as much as we can uh, from each passage and see what Father wants us to know. But, but chapters 8 and 9 are really kind of focusing on one topic. Uh, and specifically, that topic is giving. And we didn't really want to spend the next three months kind of analyzing that one topic over and over again. So I, I thought it best to try to do it over these three weeks. And so we're kind of in the middle of it. Uh, but for those that weren't here last week and were watching online, you would have known that we had some technical issues. Are we having any technical issues this time? We're good. We're good. Excellent. I love, though, by the way, that we're, we're part of a community where it's OK for things to fall, for things to fall apart and things to not work. And we can go, oh, well, and move on. Right? Because it's not about the performance. It's not about the final outcome of it all. It's about, again, it's about living that life of worship in Jesus. And so it's so good that we can just kind of laugh and go, oh, that was a funny story. Now moving forward. And we learned something that you just have to click this one button. It was that simple. <laughs> Is that, uh, it's simple. It's just good. It's all good, though. No, it's all good. Well, let's do a little bit of review then uh, from what we talked about last time. And what we talked about last time is that God doesn't primarily care about money. Uh, he's not concerned about money. I say primarily because he knows we need it. He knows we live in this world. He knows that we live in an environment, in a, in a society where money is important, but it's not God's primary concern. He's more concerned about you. He's concerned about your heart. And so when it comes to money, what he's more interested in is the role that money plays on your heart or in you, right? Namely, he wants to make sure and he warns against how we can easily make God or money our God, our small g God. And what I mean by that is we, we begin to be, become obsessed with money because we think money will answer all of our problems. Money will be the answer to what I need. And so it's if I have a nice size bank account and I have a nice house and a nice car and nice, nice clothes and I can go on trips, then that will be what gives me my joy. That will give me my security and my protection. That if, I, if something goes sideways, it's OK, because I've got this money, I've got this nest egg, i got my savings, and then I'll be OK. Or maybe it will buy me my friends, because I can take them out for dinner and I can buy them gifts. Maybe, maybe it will give me hope, because I know I'm protected against you know, other forces and other people. And, and so what ends up happening is I'm, I'm looking to money to be what God is supposed to be. That, that God himself is the one to supply all my needs and not money itself. Now, he may use the money, but it's not money in and of itself. But what we saw, really what we're all chasing is contentment. That that money, that, that nice bank account, that nice house, what we think is that will satisfy our soul. And remember what we saw last time, that contentment is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul learned that lesson of contentment. It was something he struggled through, but he learned to be content whether he was rich or whether he was poor. 
And that's what's so important because ultimately we're all chasing contentment. But what, what I see happening using the, the well-worn cliche is this idea that we're climbing this ladder only to discover that it's been leaning up against the wrong wall. We're working so hard to, to get the money, to get the prestige, to get the, the, the nice job and all those things in place and only to discover when you get to the top of the ladder, it's not where you want to be. And that was really Solomon's story in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, contentment can only be found in Jesus. And so, yes, he knows that we live in a material world. He knows we have material needs, and he will supply those needs, and he will look after us, but we're not meant to chase after those things. Instead, who do we chase after? Who do we chase after? Jesus. Jesus, right? We chase after him. He's the one that's going to answer all of our needs. We seek him, and we discover what he's done. We discover who we are and who he is in us, and we discover now the ability that we have to trust him and follow him, no matter where he leads us, knowing that wherever he leads, he'll always supply all of our needs. But we also discover then that money is not evil, right? That's not what the verse says. The verse that, that talks about that says the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's what the warning there is when we become obsessed with money. But from my experience, between the rich and the poor, guess who's more obsessed with money? The poor. The poor tend to be more obsessed with money because they think, if only, if only. And I know a lot of wealthy people that aren't obsessed with money. It doesn't control them. Now, in part because they have it. I get that. But sometimes we can become obsessed with money. And so that, that warning, the love of money is the root of all sorts of problems, isn't just for rich people. It's for everyone, even the poor. And so for God, what we see is there is it's not about being rich or poor. That's not the issue. He's okay if you're rich. He's okay if you're poor. That's not what it is. And so we kind of looked at these so-called gospels, the prosperity gospel and the social gospel, and no, namely, both of them are all about money. One is about getting money to prove that God's blessing you, and the other is to give all your money away to earn the blessing from God. But what is the gospel about? It's about who? You're getting better. You're getting better. By the end of the day, I think you'll have it. I think you'll have it. Again, it's the safe answer, by the way, right? If, if, if any pastor asks you a question, just say Jesus. You could be asleep, just say Jesus, and you're probably right. Except for that one time, it's going to be Moses. But, <laughs> but the gospel's not about money. It's about Jesus Christ. And, and that's, what, that's what we're seeking after, knowing him and experiencing him. It's even why we get together in community. Right? Because, because in this community, I get to know Jesus through you, and you get to know Jesus through me. And that's really beautiful. You see, Christ expresses himself uniquely through Alex in no other way. And so getting to know Alex, I get to know Jesus, and he gets to know Jesus through me. That's what he's wanting to do. That's why we get together in this community. And so this morning, what we want to look at then is something that is often controversial within the church, and that's this issue of giving or tithing. And now before, before we get into it, before I pray, I, I want to share with you a, a message I heard once on this very topic, a very well-known pastor. He's, in fact, at the time, he was uh, pastoring one of the largest churches in North America. And, uh, and he started off his message. He, he said, everyone pull out your wallet and hold your wallet up high. And he said, just so we're clear, I'm after this today. And everything inside me just cringed, got angry. See, God's not after your wallet. So proverbial, you can put your wallet back in your, in your purse or in your back pocket, whatever. God's not after your wallet. I'm not after your wallet. That's not what it's about. What's God after? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> he 
You're getting there. You're getting there. And that's why he's an elder. Yeah. He's after our hearts. Right? He's after our hearts. That's what he's after. Not after your money. He's after your heart. And so that's what we're going after this morning. We're going after your heart. All right, let's pray. Lord, have mercy on Josh. Be kind to him this afternoon as you rebuke him. Lord, we thank you so much for freedom. We thank you for what you've given to us through the cross. That shame is gone. We don't have to listen to shame anymore. We're not under shame. We're not under sin. We're not under death. We're in you, and we have life in you. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, this morning we'll experience that. So be the teacher and lead us to you. Lead us to freedom. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start this this morning with a a little bit of a history lesson, and and we're going to start with the children of Israel. And I mean that both as the nation, but also the the actual literal children of Israel, also known as Jacob. So Jacob, as you know, he had 12 12 children with uh, four different wives. And those children went on to become these tribes of Israel, right? So uh, at the time when Jacob died, Israel and or all the 12 sons of Israel of Jacob were residing in Egypt because there was a great drought, a great uh, uh, famine going on at the time. And, and so they're all residing in Egypt, and they're there for about 400 years. And their kids had kids who had kids who had kids who had kids who had kids. And so suddenly now this, this family of 12 grew to be a nation of two and a half million people, roughly. And they were all kind of divided up amongst these 12 children. And they became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. You had a tribe like Judah and Dan and Levi and, and Simeon and so forth, all these different tribes of, of Israel. And so now God leads them out from slavery, leads these two and a half million Jews, these, these 12 tribes, leads them out of Egypt. And now he's planning for them to go into the promised land. But to do so, what he does is he prepares a covenant. He offers them a covenant that we know as the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. Much of what we're reading in the Old Testament is, in fact, under that Old Mosaic Covenant. Everything from Exodus 20 on till, till well, the new God, till the cross is the Old Covenant, is the Old Testament. And so he offers to them, and, and he, he says to, to Levi in number 17, he says to them, you are going to be different. And not just the, the person, because the child Levi is long gone, but now the, the tribe of Levi says, you guys are going to be different than the other 11 tribes. You are going to belong to me in a unique way. You are going to serve as my priest. And the role of that priest is to be a bridge builder to create a bridge between me, God says, and the rest of the nation of Israel. And so you're going to serve me as you serve them. And that's the role of the priests, which, by the way, was to be the whole role of Israel, right? He says, Israel, you're a chosen nation. You're to be a priestly nation. For what purpose? That Israel as a nation could be a bridge between God and the rest of humanity, all the other Gentiles. That was their intent. It wasn't about just Israel. Israel was meant to be a bridge to the rest of the world. And so Levi is going to be this. They're going to be this, this, this special tribe with a special role serving God. But then in Numbers 18, he's going to explain a little bit about what kind of is the catch with that. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Numbers 18. That's in the Old Testament there. And, and beginning in verse 20, God's going to speak first to Aaron. So at this point, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and Moses and Aaron are both of the tribe of Levi. And in, in the chapter 4, number 17, there was some grumbling as to, well, who's really in charge? 
And, and this is how he kind of selected the, the tribe of Levi to be this priestly nation. He got each tribe to represent with the staff, with the rod. And overnight, one of those rods blossomed with a flower. And that was Aaron's rod. And that was God's way of selecting the tribe of Levi, but specifically even selecting Aaron. And so he says in verse 20, he says, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, no own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And to the sons of Israel, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for your inheritance in return for their service, which they perform and the service of the tent of meeting. So what he's saying basically is first, Aaron, you're going to get nothing. Isn't that exciting? Could you imagine the, the joy of that day to know you're not in the will, right? Like, we're going to this promised land, and everyone's going to get something except for you, Aaron. You're going to get nothing. And by the way, not just you, but your whole tribe. They're going to get nothing. No land, no place to really pasture, no place to, to have things, no, you know, no nice view, no ocean front, no mountain view, none of it. You get nothing. And the reason is because you're going to have a special role. Instead of having a select part of land, you guys are going to be scattered through all the other 11 tribes. But the 11, other 11 tribes, they're going to look after you. They're going to provide for you. And, and you would have maybe a little city in each of those uh, areas and, and the surrounding uh, area around the city for your, your pasture and flocks. But you really, you don't have anything. Everyone's going to look after you and provide for you. And it's going to come from the other 11. And they're going to give you a tithe. Now, the word here, the Hebrew word for tithe, literally would be best translated as, as teen, right? You think about 14 and 15 and six. I don't know why it's not five teen. Anyone know why it's not five teen? Oh, it's English. That makes sense. So it's, it's 16 and 17, 18, right? So it's, that teen is really the word for tithe. And so that's how they've translated. Then a tithe is understood to be a tenth. One tenth, or for you math people, 10%, right? So 10% was to be given by these 11 other tribes, which, if you do the math, by the way, is 110%. So they're not making out too bad, <clears throat> right? And so that was meant to look after the, 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 the Levites while they performed their priestly duties, whether it be the sacrifices, whether it be um, you know, any kind of judgments and so forth, offering sanctuary cities and such, this was all under their purview, under their administration. And so the, the, the food and the other, <clears throat> other things they needed <clears throat> excuse me, were all coming from the, the, 10, the 11 tribes of, of Judah, of Israel, sorry. Make sense? Now, you can understand why that would be attractive to churches today. Right? The, to be able to look around and say, hey, you know, if everyone just gave 10% to the church, we'd be doing great. We'd be doing, a, you know, every family were to give 10% of their income, uh, the church would have all kinds of money to, to pay the pastor. And, and maybe some other pastors, and, and maybe you know, have a building and, and have a great program. And oh, it's, it's, not, it's not only about the pastor, but it's nice to have that paycheck. And, and so the churches, you could see how they would be attracted to that model where everyone is to give 10% minimum. Because see, right now in churches across the land, there is a call going out, and, and maybe, maybe plates or, or buckets or, or little purses so you can't see what's inside of it. It's like a magic trick. A rabbit might pull out. And, and, and so all these things are being passed for your tithes, gifts, and offerings. And so that's what happens, right, is that these, these tithes, gifts, and offerings are now just the beginning of 10%, and then you can give everything on top of that. 
And when people begin to struggle with that, then often what happens is a passage from Malachi gets pulled out. So you can turn your Bibles to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, or what we know is the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, go to the left to Malachi chapter 3. And often this gets quoted. We're going to start in verse 6. And you can see it's a, it's a bit terrifying if, with the language that's being used here. And so God's speaking through Malachi. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, all 10%, essentially, so that, you may be food, so that there may be food in my house. And test me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that you will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. It's pretty strong language. Robbing God. Because you're robbing God, you're cursed with a curse. And if you give to God everything he demands, then he'll remove the curse. The blessing will come. The blessing will flow. And so a lot of people are, are sitting there going, man, I need to do something. I need to give. And, and, and they're struggling over this. But the context matters. Context always matters when it comes to studying scripture. And so we have to understand the context in which God is speaking this. They're about 100 years removed from their, their captivity in Babylon. Remember, they spent 70 years in Babylon, and they were, they were under Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. For 70 years, Daniel was there. And then he finally sets them free, and they came back to their land, and they rebuilt the temple. Well, they're about 100 years removed from that. And now a drought's happening, uh, an economic downturn, you might think, right? where they're, they're struggling to, to have enough crops, and they're worried about their own selves. They're worried about their own families. And so now it's that time of year where they're supposed to give 10%, and they're they're clawing some back because they're worried. Well, we got to make sure we have enough in case. What if the drought continues longer? What if things get really bad? So you know what? I know we're supposed to give 10%, but we're going to give less. In essence, who is Israel trusting in? They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their own power, their own resources, rather than trusting in? Really? Like, like what, what else did you need other than that was the moment? They're not trusting in God, right? They're not trusting in God's provision and God's power. They're trusting in their own strength. So he's saying, don't trust in yourself. Put me to the test. I know you're scared, but do what I've asked you to do. And what he's asked here is to do a tithe. How do we know? Because that was part of the covenant, part of the Mosaic covenant. They weren't following the Mosaic covenant, and therefore they weren't trusting in God. And so that's what he's asking. Trust me by doing the covenant. Great story, amen? One problem. That doesn't apply to you and I today. Not because we're not in a, in a drought or economic downturn, but we're not under the old Mosaic covenant. In fact, truth be told, truth be told, unless you're Jewish, you were never under the Mosaic Covenant. It wasn't for you, right? It was for Israel. 
It was for the descendants of Israel, not for you and I as Gentiles. We were never part of that covenant. But what's happened is what we've tried to do in the church is we tried to, to just see that, that as Christians now, we go back under this old covenant system. And we're going to now try to live it out and follow it. But that's not the purpose. But we say, well, it's in the Bible. True, but we have to be smart in understanding the Bible. Turn in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 15. So that's one of Paul's epistles. So it's after the, after the Gospels. And, and, and if you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. But it's his pastoral epistle that Paul writes to Timothy. Soon before, I mean, soon after this, Paul's going to die. He's going to leave this earth. And so this is one of his last letters that he's writing, especially to, his, to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he, and he writes to Timothy, he says, be diligent. This is, this is important. Give it, give it intention, give it importance, work hard. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling, or the King James says, rightly dividing the word of truth. That accurately handing, rightly dividing, is essentially is it's being able to, to separate and understand the kind of the wheat and the chaff and what's applicable and what's not. And the reality is not all of Scripture applies to you. In fact, a good chunk of it doesn't because it was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And you and I are under a new covenant. Now, the great mistake people make is, well, isn't the new and old? Aren't they just sort of a continuation? Isn't the new covenant allowing us simply to fulfill the old covenant? Well, that's not what it says. Keep, keep flipping a bit to the right, and you're going to come to Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 8, what, what, see, what God's done through Jesus is he's come to set us free from that covenant. Because the old covenant was all about you and your work and what you could pull off. It was all about your effort trying to measure up to a particular standard. And if you were good enough, then you got blessings. In fact, you could read about it if you want in Deuteronomy 29. Verses 1 to 14, God says, if you do everything perfectly all the time, you'll be blessed. You'll be the head, not the tail. You'll always have food in your storehouse. Your bellies will always be full. Your kids will even honor you and respect you. I mean, that's incredible right there. I know, right? So that's, that's a remark remarkable. And those goes, that's the blessing. But if you fail at any point along the way and you're not perfect, then beginning in verse 15 to, I think it's about 50, no, it's about 60 something, because there's about 50 verses of curses. I mean, that should have been the clue. That should have been the, I don't like this deal. But they thought they could do it. And they couldn't. Because the point of that old covenant wasn't so that they could earn the blessing. The point of that old covenant was to show their failure to show that they could never be good enough. It would prepare them for that desperate need for Jesus. And so in Roman, sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 13, the writer says here, and when he said a new covenant, speaking about God, God has made the first, what's the first? The Mosaic covenant. The old covenant, obsolete. No longer applies. It's gone. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to disappear. It's still around for those who need to come to Jesus. But for you and I, who've already come to faith in Jesus, we don't need it anymore. Read about that in Galatians 3, 23 to 25. Talks about how that faith was there, or sorry, the law was there as our tutor, our, our pedagogos, our governor, literally the one who would slap your hand every time you failed to lead you to faith in Christ. 
He says, now that faith has come, now that you put your faith in Jesus, that law, that tutor, that paedagogos, that governor is no longer required. And so in Romans 6, 14, we have this incredible verse, for sin shall not be your master because you're not under the law. You're not under the old covenant. You have no part in the old covenant. You're under a new covenant. You're under grace, a whole new system. A system where you do not earn, you don't deserve. Instead, it's given to you freely. Now, it didn't cost nothing. It cost Jesus everything. But it's free to you and me because it's a gift he's offering to us. All that he's asking for you and I now is to receive this wonderful grace. Now, one person challenged me once about when I was teaching about this. And, and the question he asked was, how is it you don't have to keep the first commandment now? I mean, if you're really not under law, how can you not keep that first commandment, which is to have no other gods before me? You see, his thinking is flawed. His thinking is, if I'm not under law, that's automatically going to lead to lawlessness, that I'm suddenly going to do all these horrible, sinful things, that the law is what's keeping me in check. Well, that's not the case. Israel was under the law, and how often did they stray? The law doesn't keep you in check. It's not the job of the law. It's simply there to tell you the standard and then point out when you fail and beat you up for failing. But it doesn't empower you in any way to keep it. But here's the thing under grace. Does that mean under grace that I no longer go to God? Of course not. But my motivation's changed. I no longer need an external law to say, go to God. I no longer need an external law that says, God must be the one you trust in. God must be the one you worship. What motivates me now? His love. Jesus, yeah. That's good. His love. Right? That's what John wrote about. That, that we love because he first loved us. I go to God as a response to his love for me. I don't need an external law. In the same way, I don't need a law that says love my wife. I love her because there's a desire within my heart to love her. I love God because there's a desire in my, life, my heart to love him, to trust him, to worship him, to go to him. Now, there's some things that impede that and get in the way from time to time, but the root heart, the, the core of my being loves Jesus, loves him. I want to trust him. And that's the new covenant. So I don't need this old covenant to, to, to lead me down that path. So we're free from the old. By the way, quick side note. This is, I think, important, though. In, in, if, you're back, if you're still in Hebrews there, in Hebrews 8, if you want, you go to Hebrews 7 for a moment. And beginning in verse, uh, I think, 12 onward, uh, the writer there, he's talking about a man named Melchizedek. And he's, his point is he's trying to make that, this, this idea, this concept that Jesus is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important? Because under the old covenant, Jesus could never be a priest. He's unqualified. You say, what do you mean? He's perfect. How, how could Jesus not be qualified as a priest? Because he's not of the tribe of Levi. See, Jesus is a descendant of David, who's a descendant of Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. And Judah, especially the descendant of David, that allowed Jesus to be king. He's the rightful king of Israel, and he's on the throne, just as God promised that there will be a descendant of David that sits on the throne forever, speaking of Jesus. But a king can never be the high priest, and a high priest can never be the king. Different tribes. So it wouldn't work under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, you change the priesthood. You no longer need a priest of, of Levi, Jesus of, of this order of Melchizedek, who was a high priest and a king. He was the king of Salem, later called Jerusalem. 
That's the kind of priest that Jesus is. He's a royal priest. That is not possible under the old covenant, only possible under the new covenant. And so all of that has set us free. Which kind of brings us to, to another point, another question, which is about this guy named Melchizedek. And I've heard this argument used multiple times that, that it's looking at the story of Melchizedek. Now, we, we read a little bit about him in, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, but really his story is told for us in Genesis 14. So in Genesis 14, Abraham has a nephew named Lot living in Sodom at the time when these, these group of, of, of kings, and, and really they're pirates or Vikings maybe, right? They're coming through and they were just pillaging towns and robbing everyone. And, and that's what they did. They came through Sodom and Gomorrah and they, they robbed and beat up and they're kidnapping people and, and they're taking them away. Well, Abraham gets word that his nephew Lot's been abducted. And so he grabs some of his buddies and they go track down these, these pirates and they fight a battle and Abraham's successful. He wins. And now he's coming back home across the desert when out of nowhere comes this man named Melchizedek. Again, high priest of God, king of Salem. And together they worshiped God and Abraham paid a tithe or 10% of the victory. He gave him a tenth, a tenth of the spoils of war. And people point to that and say, well, see, Abraham was before Moses. Abraham is before the Mosaic Covenant. It's before Exodus 20. Therefore, what Abraham did with Melchizedek in paying a tithe supersedes the covenant and therefore applies to everyone today. Isn't that interesting? That, it, that this idea that, that we have something that is greater than the covenant, that's bad news for you and me. Because if there's something that's not included in the covenant that you and I are still applicable under, what else is there? So there's nothing in the passage that tells me that this would supersede a covenant. We're just adding it. But that's not how covenants work. You don't have the covenant, which is the detailing the, the kind of relationship that two parties are going to have. And under the new covenant, the grace covenant is God does it all, and I trust and receive by faith. That's the covenant. But if you're going to add something in that's not actually in the covenant, then my question is, what else is in the covenant? Because now we're just making stuff up. And it's not there. Here's the other problem, though. Abraham didn't give 10% of all he had. He only gave 10% of the spoils of war. So if you want to say that, no, this is the principle that applies, then okay, then give God 10% of your spoils of war. Now, unless you're a soldier or mercenary or something like that, chances are you don't have spoils of war. It's not applying to your income and so forth. So it doesn't actually apply. It's just, again, I think what it is, is it's churches that are afraid. I was working with one church and, 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 and the group of elders, and, and they were really struggling with this. And really what it came down to is they were afraid. See, they, they looked at it and says, we, we want to challenge our people to trust. We want to challenge our people to give. And, and just like Malachi, watch how God's going to provide for them. And I said, great. So here's what I say to you. You first. You first. You trust that God will move in their hearts to give rather than mandate it. Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to mandate this. Well, here's a quote I came across that I think really kind of hammers this point home from a commentary. He wrote this. His tithing is Jewish. Applying a little Christian varnish changes nothing. It belongs to that old covenant. Paul was reared as a Jew. If tithing could have been Christianized, the man who could and would have done it was Paul. 
And no better opportunity offered itself than in the great collection that he planned for all of his churches simultaneously. Speaking specifically of what he's writing here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But he says Paul shunned tithing. All the apostles shunned it. Not a word of Jesus favors it. His very mention of tithing is severely derogatory. And the only other mention of it in the New Testament is purely historical. It's not, is this not enough? More than enough. Each one, just as he has chosen for himself in his heart. You see, under the new covenant, we don't tithe. We don't give a 10%. We give. Now, people say, well, isn't that just semantics? Isn't, isn't that really just the same thing, the same idea? We, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the same thing, and it's not. See, a tithe is mandatory. It's a tax. It's required. Whereas a gift is something that is free. It's something that we get to do. It's an opportunity for us. It's optional. Well, this week, as I was studying this passage, I, I watched a, another message by, again, another very famous pastor. You would, you would know his name if I said it. And he's, he's teaching a lot of these same things. Old covenant, new covenant. We're not under the old. We're under the new. Melchizedek doesn't apply. We're free, grace, everything. And it's, it's sounding great. And then he says, so if you only want to give 10%, that's your choice. Me? I want to give more. I want to give more. I want to, I want to bless the every people. I want to see God work. I want to give more in my gifts and offerings. Do you see what he did? He still has the 10% required. He's just now using that, this grace, as an opportunity to get more. And you see, that's not what it is. It's, it's about giving what is on your heart to give. And, and you see, Yes, you could give more, but you can also give less than 10%. But, but aren't we supposed to give till it hurts? I mean, isn't it supposed to be a sacrificial giving? Isn't that what we're supposed to do as, as good Christians? In fact, there's a passage in 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, in fact, that would seem to imply that. So turn to 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And we're going to see, I think, the passage that people use to, to preach this idea of give till it hurts or sacrificial giving and so forth. And so Paul's writing to this church in Corinth. He says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you of the grace of God, which is given in the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is a province north of where the Corinthians are. So they're kind of the northern province there. And he says, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in order, or in, sorry, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they, gave first, they gave, first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. See, the Macedonians did it. They gave beyond what they could handle. They gave beyond what was comfortable. And Paul's praising them. Here's the problem. Paul's telling a story. He's not teaching a principle. He's telling a story, not preaching a principle. He's not saying, this is what you're supposed to do. This is now the, the, the model. Do what the Macedonians do. Right? Handing out bracelets, WWMD. What would Macedonians do? Like, he's not teaching that. How do we know that's the case? Well, if we kept reading, we would find out. Jump down to verse 11. 
He says, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. You see, he's writing these two chapters because the church in Corinth had promised a gift ahead of time. And Paul was saying, I'm coming. We're going to pick up that gift. I want you to be ready so you're not caught off guard. You're not surprised. Remember, you made a pledge. You made a promise. And so he says, I want you to give, but not to the point where it hurts. It's not for your affliction. It's give what you can. Give what's placed in your heart to give. That's what it's about. And so it's not give to the hurts. It's not sacrificial giving. It's give what's on your heart. In fact, he's even more explicit in the next chapter. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8, he says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That's it. Give, give what's on your heart. And you know what's scary is for, for churches? Now I have to trust you to go talk to God about it. And then I got to trust that you're going to follow God about it. That's scary in some ways, but you know what? That's all that I ask. Because I'm not after your money. I'm after your heart. And what do I want your heart to do? Go talk to Jesus. Find out from Jesus what he wants you to do. And then go do it. And if he asks you to give you know, a few dollars or hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars, or if you need help spelling millions, I can help you. Right? Whatever it is that's in your heart to give, do that and not, not a penny more. Because you're doing it in obedience to him. Not to a law, not to a command, and most certainly not to me. And watch what God will do. And I've seen people do this. I've seen people give cars away. I've seen people give money away. I've seen people give time and, uh, and food and, and all kinds of things. Because that's what God put on their heart to do. And they're just trusting following God. Because it's about freedom. Right? Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. Say freedom. freedom. Okay, say it like you mean it. Freedom. Say it like I'm William Wallace on a battlefield. I was this close to getting dressed up. I was, I, I just, I'm, I'm Irish, so I have to be the crazy guy, right? So, so it's for freedom that you've been set free. So you're free to give. You're free not to give. You're free to follow Jesus. You're free to do what's in your heart. It's an invitation to trust him. That's what it's about. It's not about the money. Again, I was, I was really tempted. I was going to ask Robin and Greg to reenact the, the, the scene from Jerry Maguire, show me the money. I was so tempted, right, to just see them, just show me the money, right? You could figure out who's going to be Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr., but, <coughs> but I thought it would have been really special. I thought it would have been really good. So uh, if you want it for next week, you know who to talk to. Jesus, right? Okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. Some people even have a spiritual gift of giving. It talks about that in Romans, Romans chapter 12, where there are these seven gifts. And some people have this, this supernatural gift of giving, where God has blessed them with money, and they happily give it all away, or lots of it away. And what's incredible is they don't even think about it. They just do what's on their heart. Now, does that mean it only applies to them? No. 
applies to all of us. We all are going to participate in some form, but these people with this supernatural gift of giving will often give more. So the question is, well, why do we give? It's sort of the natural, logical question, but we're going to try and cover that next week because it's too important. But in short, we give so that we can care for one another. We can look after one another. It's part of being in the community. It's part of what we're, we're offering, this, this love for one another. But money's not the only thing you can give. Again, you can give your time, your compassion, your silence. Just sitting and listening with a, with a brother or a sister. Your care, your, your love, all of that we can give. But more on that next week. I want to close with, with one more thing with the last few minutes I got with something that's really, really important. And, and it's actually found for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And it's on the importance of financial accountability. So beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, remember, he's, sending, he's going to send some people to gather up this gift. And he might come, he might not come, he's not sure yet, but these people are going to come. And he says to them in, in Corinth, he says, we've sent along with him the brother whose fame in the, in the things of the gospel has spread amongst all the churches. He's so famous, we don't have to even say his name. I don't know who he is. <laughs> I don't. I mean, maybe it was someone else. Maybe it's Peter. Maybe it's John. But we don't know who it was. He just says, this guy's really, really famous. When you see him, you'll know him. And not only this, but he's also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have high regard with what is honorable not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. He's talking about it's important that things are all above board and things are obvious. Now, here at New Life, we've, we've intentionally chosen to not have membership as part of the church. And, and the reason for that is we don't see membership in, in, in Acts or in the Gospels. If you're part of the, the family of God, you're a member. That's how it works. But there's an organization, an entity, and I understand why they have that and uh, you know, voting and all that sort of thing. And so we need to understand that financial accountability is important. And so we want to present it in another way. Namely, that what we have is we have a, we have a group of elders, and then we have a group of deacons. And those deacons are essentially the board members. And those board members, what we've tasked them with is to look after the financial well-being of the church. It's, it's sort of back in Acts chapter 6 where, where the apostles, they couldn't handle all the day-to-day -day administrative things as well as studying and praying and preaching and teaching and so forth. And so they, they separated. There was a group of deacons, Stephen and, and others, or seven of them that would look after those things while the apostles could look after the praying and the teaching, the things of the Spirit. And so that's what we've tried to set up here. And so we have this, these, uh, this board, these deacons, and that includes John, it includes Sheila, it includes Sue, and it used to be Jeremy, but now Jeremy's in what we call the executive director of the church. And so if you've got questions about where the money's going, show me the money, right? If that's your, your curiosity, come speak to any of the elders, any of the board members, or to Jeremy, and we'll happily open up the books. We've got nothing to hide. We'll show you where the money's coming in. We'll show you where the money's going. Not from who the money's coming in, but we'll show you who it's going to and how much, and then you can decide on that. We've got nothing to hide. We're going to open those books because it's important to be financially accountable. Because here's the thing. When people give to new life, they're given to Jesus. They're given to God. It's his money that he is then entrusting to us as a, as a leadership, as a church. And so not only am I accountable to you guys, I'm accountable to Jesus. We take that very seriously. 
So everything we want to be above board. So if you've got questions, we're happy to show it to you. We're happy to listen to you because we want to make sure we're doing everything right and honorable. And that's what Paul was talking about. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom you've given us. We're not under law. We're not under compulsion. We're not under condemnation. We're not under shame. We're free. We're free to do and give as you've purposed on our hearts, whether that be with money, whether that be with our time, whether that be with our service, whether that be with our, our silence and our compassion, whatever it is, we're free to follow you. We're free to trust you. So I pray, Lord Jesus, now and in, in, in for today alone, tomorrow's got its own problems, but for today alone, that our worship will continue. Our worship of trust and seeking you and following you and seeing you live through us will continue the rest of the day. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.